Can you remember the last time you felt homesick? Can you remember the last time you had that kind of a longing just to just be home? Maybe you were on vacation with someone that you can um, handle for like three days and your vacation seven. You kind of start feeling like kind of ready to be home. Remember that feeling? Maybe you've had to talk to one of your children that's away on summer camp and they call you on day two. I just want to come home. I, I think we all can kind of relate to that feeling of, of longing, that desire to be at home in your own bed where it's comfortable. Uh, that feeling of, of longing and homesickness is kind of the feeling I get from our psalm today, from Psalm 84. Uh, psalm 84 is, is a pilgrimage psalm. It's a category of psalms that were written as a song of praise for those that traveled great distances to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. It was written at a time when the temple and all of its services were fully established and regular pilgrimages or journeys were part of the national religious identity. A pilgrimage psalm is filled with language of, of longing and desire to reach the destination. And even though the journey is difficult, there is a, a palpable sense of, of optimism and determination that make these kinds of psalms unique. This psalm kind of makes me think of the movie Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. You know that movie? You got the, the three animals, that, that, that little energetic puppy, Chance, the, the prima donna cat aptly named Sassy, and that wise old sage, Shadow, that led the charge. These three pets were, were separated from their owners, and they were determined to travel and to be reunited with their, their beloved masters. They, they traveled over mountains and across rivers and, and encountered a porcupine because they were just determined to get back home. And you couldn't help but root for these guys because you could just feel their sense of, of passion and desire to, to be reunited with their owners. They were on a pilgrimage. They were on an incredible journey with a clear destination driven by hope. Because in the simplest of terms, that's what a pilgrimage is. So what do you call a person on a pilgrimage? A pilgrim, right? Now I don't know about you, but when I hear the word pilgrim, I instantly think of Turkey. I think of Thanksgiving. I think of those guys that, that traveled over on the, on the Mayflower from England and landed at Plymouth Rock. That's what I think of when I think of a pilgrim. They too were on a journey with a destination driven by hope. Well, Psalm 84 gives us a picture of what a biblical pilgrimage looks like. And as we work through it together, I want us all to wrestle with a question. And it's this. Are you a pilgrim or a settler? When you look at your spiritual life, is it marked by a desire to move forward, to grow in your faith, to attain deeper intimacy with God? 
Are you leaning into your faith and leaning onto God's people in your community to help you get closer to God? Or are you stuck? Are you content with where you're at? Are you happy just maintaining the status quo? Are you settling for the mundane because you've lost hope or you've simply gotten bored along the way? The pilgrim is on a glorious journey, focused on a destination and driven by unbridled hope and expectation, whereas a settler is going nowhere. They're driven by nothing and they are destined to experience no more than the repetitive tedium of a humdrum existence. So let's look together at what a pilgrim looks like. A pilgrim has passion for the presence of God. And you can't miss this point after reading just the first few verses. Look at the way the psalmist describes his passion for the presence of God. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What was the pilgrim actually longing for? The dwelling place? The courts? Oh yes, he was headed to the temple. But I don't think he was longing for the fancy building with all of its ornate features. He wasn't driven by the allure of the building or the grandeur of the gold and marble accents. Because the pilgrimage wasn't to a place, it was to a person. It was the grandeur and the glory of God that he sought after. He wasn't enamored by the building. The thing that kept him moving forward was the one for whom the building was constructed. Now make no mistake about it, the temple was spectacular. It's been estimated that in today's dollars, the temple would have cost between five and six billion dollars meaning that I would have just barely been able to afford to buy it. Just barely. The, the temple was a destination point for sure. But that wasn't what caused the pilgrim's soul to faint or his heart to cry out. He was moving forward. He was pressing on toward the destination because he wanted to be in the presence of the living God. After Tammy and I got married, uh, she really, really wanted to see the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> she would not stop. I just, I want to go, I want to go. Can we please? So for our honeymoon, we did go to the baseball. <laughs> okay, it was me. I, no one's buying this. Um, I, I always had wanted to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So we did go on our honeymoon, and, and I promise you, if I sat down with you after the service and tried my hardest to tell you one thing about that building, I couldn't do it. I, I think it was made out of brick. I have no idea the, the architectural design or the structural layout of the building, but oh boy, I could talk for hours about the men 
who were enshrined there. I couldn't wait to get to the Baseball Hall of Fame because of my desire to dwell in the presence for whom the museum was built. Now, the modern-day equivalent of the temple is the church. No, we don't make yearly pilgrimages to the temple to make sacrifices or to offer prayers. But we do have a calling for the regular assembling of the saints. We have a regular call to worship at our local church. Oh, yes, it's a building that we journey to, but it's so much more than brick and mortar. How many trips have you made to Salem First Baptist for a Sunday morning worship service? How many pilgrimages, how many journeys have you made to this building to gather and to dwell in the presence of God? For some of you, it's dozens. For some of you, it's two or three. We've been getting new folks every week, and it is so exciting to have new friends join us. For others, you've been here for a while and you could count hundreds of Sunday morning pilgrimages. I've been a pastor here for 29 years, putting me well over 1,400 trips to this building in this sanctuary to worship God and to share fellowship with my church community. Now, it would be an overstatement. It would be dishonest if I were to stand here and say, every Sunday morning, my heart cries out. That, that's an overstatement. But without equivocation, I can stand before you and before God and say, I love Sunday mornings. I love being here with you. I love serving here. I look so forward to my time with my community group as we share prayer requests and we study God's word together. I love making my Sunday morning journey to this building to be in your presence and to be in the presence of God. Now, can I ask you a tough question? What's your Sunday morning look like? Are you a pilgrim that is filled with a deep longing to dwell in God's house? Or are you more of a settler? Just kind of stuck in neutral, not super interested in the journey. Has the Sunday morning routine become stale or commonplace? Or maybe even just a rote exercise that is more of a religious experience than a passionate pursuit? Is there a longing to be here on Sunday morning? Or is there a latent dread of the whole ordeal? My friends, if you've drifted from being a determined pilgrim to being a disinterested settler, if you have lost your passion for the presence of God, I want you to put a mark in Psalm 84. I want you to commit to reading it every day for a week, putting yourself in the place of the psalmist. I want these words to stir the waters of your soul so that your church might be that lovely place again, that place that you long to dwell in because it's there that you know that you will dwell in the presence of the living God. Now, the yearly journey to the temple was filled with anticipation and excitement, but it wasn't exactly an easy trip. The land was arid and dry. The terrain was laden with steep mountains and deep valleys. The lack of water left them parched 
And the miles traveled left their bodies weary. But it was all worth it. Because the journey ended at the temple where God's presence dwelt. And that yearly reunion refreshed their souls like nothing else could. Why? Because a pilgrim gains strength through adversity. Strength is a noble attribute. It's a quality that our culture esteems and values, and that's for good reason. Showing strength is better than showing weakness, right? No one puts on a resume, um, I have an extremely fragile temperament and no ability whatsoever to endure difficult situations. You're not going to get hired. Nobody puts that on a resume. Think of the things that make you feel strong. Think of the things that make you feel vital and vibrant. I know that some of you are committed to healthy eating. For you, you just like a, a ball of raw twine. You just like, ah, oh, I'm gonna chew on it, get my fiber. You just like ripping bark off of trees and you're like, oh, healthy, organic. <laughs> Protein shakes. I mean, for like non-GMO, that is for you, okay? For some of you, healthy eating makes you feel strong. For others, maybe it's um, uh, some yoga. Um, maybe it's uh, working out, going to the gym. Every day is bicep day for me. <laughs> uh, maybe it's your um, maybe it's your retirement plan. Maybe it's your your financial stability is the thing that makes you feel strong. Or it could be your reputation. Your, your standing in the community that makes you feel powerful, effective, and formidable. But when I look at Psalm 84, I don't see diet, exercise, or social status listed as the means by which strength is formed. Instead, this psalm points to the positive effect that adversity has on the dedicated, driven pilgrim. Look at verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. You see, the journey to the temple wasn't for the faint of heart. And neither is the Christian journey. You know, if we're not careful, all of us can fall into that trap. We can believe the lie that says that following Christ somehow insulates, it protects the follower from hardship and adversity. Because becoming a Christian is supposed to, to lead to peace and joy and love and confidence and assurance, right? Right? If you're feeling lonely and sad, you, you pray this prayer and, and Jesus will become your best friend and, and he will fill you with joy, right? Well, that is true. It is true that putting your faith in Jesus Christ is the way to experience the abundant life that God desires for us. Being born again is the pathway to peace. That is true. But my friends, never in scripture is there a promise of a trouble-free life. In fact, the opposite is true. 
Jesus was all about full disclosure. Jesus was not about pulling a bait and switch. Jesus said very clearly, in this world, there will be trials. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. The psalmist takes the pilgrim through the valley of Baca. No one really knows if there was such a valley. It's probably just a hypothetical place that was meant to conjure up images of of desolation and struggle and suffering. Literally, the phrase means the valley of weeping. And the amazing thing about this valley is that it doesn't make the pilgrim weaker. It doesn't make the pilgrim pack up and go home because it was just too hard. Instead, it was in this place that the pilgrim found strength. If anyone knows Helen Keller's story, I'm sure we would all agree that she knows a thing or two about overcoming adversity. Listen to the wisdom that she offers, the lesson that she learned through her struggles that she had to endure in life. She says that character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. What does she say? What did she learn That trials and suffering strengthen the soul. They clarify our vision and they inspire us to succeed. It's almost as if she had just finished reading Psalm 84. Here's the ironic part of this psalm. We all ought to be like pilgrims. We all ought to have this, this longing and this desire to dwell in the courts of the Lord. But here's the thing. If the road to God's presence were smooth and easy, devoid of any struggle or danger, I don't think arriving at the destination would be quite so sweet. At the end of Paul's life, he wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith till the end. And you know what gives those words such power? You know what makes that verse so poignant? It's the fact that Paul had to endure incredible hardship in his journey toward the presence of God. He was stoned, in prison, and beaten for sharing the gospel. As he made his missionary journeys, he was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, and he experienced great danger for the sake of faithfully executing his calling, which was to know God and to make him known. You see, the struggle makes the journey worth it. The valley of Baca, the weeping drives you to the foot of the throne, directly into the presence of God. Because when you're out of strength, when you are weary and tired from the journey, he is the one who brings life and joy to your soul. Verse seven, I love the phrase, says they go from strength to strength. They build strength upon strength until each appears before God in Zion. Do you see once again the psalmist pointing to God as the destination point? Pointing to God as the target that we ought to fix our eyes on? Because when all the earthly things that make us feel strong are removed, 
when our body begins to give out on us, when our eyes become weak, when our mind becomes less sharp, it is then that we must rely on the strength of the Lord to sustain us. As I was thinking about the valley of Baca, I began to reflect on my life and honestly, I've lived a pretty easy life. I haven't had very many of those moments where I I doubted my faith or I questioned my faith or I struggled. I really haven't had very many valleys of Baca. But when Sierra was in the hospital with her tumor, there was a 30 minute period that I experienced the valley of weeping. I became very aware of the fact that my tear ducts worked really well. Um, Our daughter, uh, when she was four, uh, she woke up one morning complaining that her heart hurt, which was kind of a weird thing for a kid to say. Um, And uh, we took her to the doctor and they discovered that that there was a a tumor. It was a a teratoma tumor. First thing the doctor said is, don't you dare Google that. Those things are ugly looking. Um, So she had this tumor and she was in the hospital for seven days. And the worst day, the worst day of the entire ordeal was the day we had the two doctors that we were working with come into the room. And the doctors were at odds. The surgeon said, mom and dad, this tumor in your daughter's chest is enormous. It's already collapsed one of her lungs. We have got to get it out right away. I recommend surgery today. The oncologist said, mom and dad, this tumor in your daughter's chest is enormous but it would be dangerous to take it. We need three days to hit it with radiation to shrink it to the point that we can get it out. I recommend radiation. We'll be back in 30 minutes. Mom and dad, figure out what you want to do. Tammy's father is a surgeon, so she left the room to go consult uh, with her parents, and I was left in the room alone with Sierra. So I sat by her bed, and this was the prayer that I said. I said, God, if you've got a dark path that you want to lead me down, I'll go with you. If you've got a difficult journey in store for me, I will go with you. But my preference would be that I get a couple more years with my daughter. That was the most helpless I have ever felt in my entire life because I could do nothing to help my daughter. But I'll tell you what. It was the absolute closest I have ever felt to the presence of God. Why? Because in my time of adversity, in my personal valley of Baca, I intentionally and fervently sought the presence of God. Now, I don't know if you're in a valley right now, but if you are, don't get angry with God. Get closer to him. If you're feeling worn out and wearied, don't give up, get moving. If you've become a settler and your muscles are weak from inactivity, get up. Drink one of those protein shakes and find your strength in the presence of God. Because notice what happens. Notice what happens when the traveling pilgrim summons the strength to finish the journey. Those final verses, verses 8 through 12, they read like a psalm of praise or a a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. He says, hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. 
Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Upon arrival in the temple, the pilgrim enters the temple with hundreds of other God-fearing worshipers and he cries out, I made it. There's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now. Because a pilgrim finds joy in the company of God's people. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, I'll tell you what, if I didn't have a job and have to work on Sunday mornings, if I didn't have responsibilities on Sunday morning, I guarantee you, I know exactly where I would be, what team I would be on. I'd be on the greeting team. I love standing at the door, greeting people as they come. High-fiving people, hugging people, welcoming them to church. I love it. I would be a doorkeeper because it's a highly esteemed position now. But it wasn't when this psalm was written. The doorkeeper was actually a low position. It was a humble position because that person wasn't a priest. That person didn't have the fancy velvet robes. And the psalmist says, I would rather have the lowest position in God's house than to spend a thousand days anywhere else. A thousand days at Disneyland, a thousand days at Silverwood, a thousand days at any other place. I'll take one as a doorkeeper. See, because there was joy when you entered the temple. The worship and the praise and the, and the fellowship and the community that was there was unlike anything else. Better is one day here than a thousand elsewhere. That's a worship song. You've sung that song because worship is the natural response to being in the presence of a holy God. And what is worship? In the simplest terms, worship is proclaiming the goodness of God back to him. It's acknowledging his character and humbly declaring your love for him. It's declaring things like the Lord God is a sun and a shield. What's he saying? He's saying, God, you are both distant and powerful like the sun, and yet you are near and personal like a shield. He's saying, God, your holiness could consume me like that ball of fire in the sky, and yet you shield me and keep me safe. He's saying, like the sun, God, you illuminate my sins, but yet like a shield, you give me the strength to overcome my shortcomings. He's saying, God, you are dangerously strong, and yet you are tenderly safe. Thank you. I'm here to worship you. I'm glad I finished the journey because I'm now here with you, worshiping you with my friends, my fellow pilgrims. The first time I ever went whitewater rafting, it was on the Deschutes River. Anybody rafted the Deschutes River? It's beautiful. First time I'd ever been whitewater rafting. I was there with a, a large group of, of college students, Willamette students, and we all assembled the morning of the, of the big trip. And we were going to get our safety talk. And I got a tap on the shoulder. And it was one of the raft guides. 
and he said, um, we weren't expecting this many people. Uh, we are short one raft guide. You're going to lead one of the boats. And I said, um, I am woefully unqualified. I've never even been whitewater rafting before. The girl standing next to me, Emily, literally starts weeping. And I'm not just saying that to make the story better. Literally weeping. She was convinced it was her last day on the planet. I told him, I'm not qualified. And he said, you'll be fine. Just listen to the uh, safety captain giving the instructions. So I did. First words out of his mouth. When you fall out of the boat... Pretty sure he said when, not if. When you fall out of the boat, you're going to have an instinct to get back in. Lesson number one, resist that instinct. You're going to want to get back in the boat because the place people fall out of the boat is in the rapids. So you're going to be scared, you're going to be cold, and everything within you is going to say, get back in the boat, don't do that. Because here's why. When you're trying to get back in the boat, your, your body will be upright, which means your head is up and your feet are down. When your feet are down, that's where the things are that cause the rapids. That's where the rocks are. That's where the logs are. You will kick them. It will hurt. It will be unsafe. The boat will be going faster than you. It's not going to work. Don't try to get back in the boat. Lesson number one, don't try to get back in the boat. Resist your instinct. Lesson number two, when you're in the rapids, simply lean back, Grab your life jacket and put your feet out in front of you. Ride the rapids. Your feet will be out. If you come up to something, you can kick yourself off. And at the end of every set of rapids, there is always calm water where the boat will be waiting for you and your friends will pull you to safety. I got that all down. We hit our first rapids. Guess who falls out? Not me, worse, Emily. <laughs> Emily falls out. I'm the last one of the boat, so I'm the last one to see her with her huge eyes floating past me. And with all of my expert training, I yell to her, hang on, we'll pick you up in a minute. <laughs> what did the safety captain do for us? He did the same thing the psalmist did. He told us, guys, we're going to go on a beautiful journey. And along the way, there's going to be some choppy water. There are going to be some rapids. And you might fall into them, and you might get spun around and churned around and chewed up and spit out. But trust me, there will be calm waters, and your community will be there to pick you up. And the excitement and the joy of your reunion is going to be a beautiful thing. Trust me. That's exactly what the psalmist does here. He says, my friends, the journey into the presence of God is a beautiful thing. And along the way, you might have to go through the Valley of Baca. But keep pressing forward. There's a better day waiting for you. When you rejoin with your community, when you connect with your community, they will be there to buoy you and to help you. Ralph Waldo Emerson is the one credited with saying, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. I don't think he ever read Psalm 84. 
You see, those words are really helpful for the person who almost reaches the summit of Mount Everest. Those words are comforting for the person that comes in second, the person that didn't quite make it. But in the context of Psalm 84, my friends, it's all about the destination. The pilgrim's heart longs to dwell in the presence of the Lord. The courts are filled with the praises of those that have arrived at the house of God. See, a pilgrim is the one who sets out on a journey with a clear destination in mind, filled with hope that overcomes all obstacles. Just like the sons of Korah, who traveled through the valley of Baca in order to reach the temple. Just like Emily, who traveled through the rapids, knowing that a community of friends are waiting in the still waters to pull her to safety. My friends, I hope this psalm is an encouragement to you. Don't be a settler that's content with the status quo. Don't be a settler who aimlessly wanders through life without passion for God or hope for a better day ahead. Instead, like a determined pilgrim, set your heart on one thing, finishing the good journey of enjoying God's presence. The fellowship will be sweet. The worship will be at the perfect volume level and you will be richly blessed because you finished the journey.